And on This Week in Pharmacy, Dr. David Neubauer, who is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at John Hopkins Medicine. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. think of some of the, in, the the information that we're talking about on this network, it's how pharmacist roles are expanding into specialties. We, we know that pediatrics is one of our specialties and rare disease. We know that we're continuing to have pharmacists championing diabetes care, hypertension, and then, and then the exciting stuff like artificial intelligence and the usage of digital therapeutics. I'm glad that you're here, um, David, and, and what you bring to the table for our pharmacist listeners is really centralized around sleep disorders and insomnia and insomnia medications too, and how that can interact with people's lives and and really to be disruptive. So give our listeners um, some background on on you, David, and and let us know um, about your passion in in insomnia. Sure. Well, I've had a, a lifelong interest in the brain and psychology, and uh, you know, sleep is sort of the uh, intersection of that, and so. Um, I, even as a teenager, uh, I was looking at articles in like Life magazine back then, and I was fascinated by these articles that sometimes would focus on sleep research and people in laboratories that were all wired up to EEG machines and monitoring them through the night. And uh, it was sort of latent for a while, but finally when I was in um, medical school and doing my residency in psychiatry, I recognized the uh, emerging literature about the importance of sleep and abnormalities of sleep and how they overlap with with psychiatric disorders. So that really um, strengthened my interest. And ultimately, I expanded out to a broader interest in the whole range of sleep disorders and, and really sleep health for the general population. So I'm sort of an evangelist about people getting um, good quantity and good quality of sleep because it's so important overall for our wellness. So I've been involved in sleep medicine for um, well over three decades now. I have a special interest in insomnia and within insomnia, a special interest in the variety of things that people take to try to sleep better. So we have some notes that says 10 to 30% of the general population of the U.S. who suffer with chronic insomnia, traditional treatments like benzodiazepines and Z drugs are not only lacking in long-term help, but also carry the burden of being controlled substances due to their significant risk for abuse and dependence. That sentence right there is going to make many of our pharmacist ears perk up because they have people in the community in the hospital system, in the specialty, in long-term care or caring for seniors, all being impacted by this exact situation. Could you kind of expand a little bit on that uh, place setter um, before we dig deeper? Yes, absolutely. And, and you mentioned in the beginning that insomnia is such a common problem. Um, there are a lot of people who have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, and there may be a, a lot of reasons that they experience that. And so probably you know, a third of the population falls into that category with at least occasional 
insomnia that's a problem for them, but it's that 10% of the general population that seems to qualify for the diagnostic criteria for chronic insomnia disorder. And that's difficulty in falling asleep and staying asleep in conjunction with some daytime consequences. And that, that may be complaints of fatigue and malaise and uh, moodiness, uh, difficulty with attention and concentration and memory and uh, decreased productivity, all the things that you can imagine somebody might suffer with in the daytime when they're not able to sleep adequately during the nighttime. And the diagnostic criteria also include uh, the fact that it needs to go on for at least three months and it needs to be at least three nights a week. And in addition to that, it has to be in the context of somebody having the appropriate context uh, for sleep, an adequate opportunity, uh, an environment for their sleep. So, and also it shouldn't obviously be due to some other disorder. So with all of that, somebody may qualify uh, for insomnia disorder. So that would be the, the 10% of, of individuals. So those people who are suffering you know, may try to seek some treatment on their own. They may buy various products. They may get prescribed different things from different providers. There are, and there's a whole lot of uh, attitudes, there's a lot of misinformation about sleep and hypnotic medications and, uh, and a lot of the newer products that are coming along. So it's really a, a great topic for discussion because there are so many different things that are available now. We have a lot of different medications that are approved by the FDA for treating insomnia. There are a whole lot of other medications that are prescribed off-label. And um, you know, then there are various over-the-counter things that people try, and there may be some risks and some benefits associated with those as well. So with regard to those medications that are approved by the FDA for treating insomnia, certainly the um, oldest and largest category are the benzodiazepines. So these are benzodiazepine receptor agonists, and the, they're made up of um, several older benzodiazepines because they have the, the, the particular benzodiazepine structure. And then we have the, the newer non-benzodiazepines, also called um, positive allosteric modulators at the GABA-8 receptor complex. So all of those uh, were found to be pretty good at promoting sleep, um, some of them for too long with really long half-lives. The newer generation, the non-benzodiazepines, uh, sometimes called the Z-drug, things like Zolpidem, Zaloplon, Zopaclone, um, those have shorter half-lives, so risk-benefit ratio is somewhat better for those. And for quite a few years, those, those were the mainstay because they were a whole lot better than the previous drugs, the barbiturates, uh, laudanum, things like that, that had been using for, used for many, many decades previous to that. So there's been a positive role for the benzodiazepines, but we recognize, as you mentioned already, you know, there are risks associated with them. Uh, there may be daytime impairment with the long half-life medications. Uh, there are warnings in the labels with the Z drugs about confused behaviors during the night and possible injuries uh, that can occur. And we worry in older individuals in particular. We worry when people are taking uh, other medications where there can be interactions, uh, opioids in particular are concerns. And so it's really great that 
we've been able to expand the available medications, those have, that have proven efficacy and safety, the ones that are approved by the, by the FDA. So we, we actually have four different pharmacodynamic categories approved by the FDA for treating insomnia. So um, there are the benzodiazepines and the non-benzodiazepines together, sharing their general mechanism of action together, although you know they all have their individual differences. There also is a melatonin agonist medication, where Melteon's the name for that, that is approved for the treatment of insomnia characterized by difficulty with sleep onset. We also have an, an, a histamine receptor blocker um, approved for the treatment of insomnia characterized by sleep maintenance difficulty. And so we can customize the particular symptoms that somebody has, the type of the pattern of insomnia that they have. We can customize particular medications for them. So this histamine blocker is doxepin, which people are familiar with as an old tricyclic antidepressant, approved back in 1969, but more recently was approved in ultra low doses for the treatment of sleep maintenance insomnia. Pharmacists may know um, if, if they're prescribing, you know, if, if, if people are prescribing much of it and they're filling it, that doxepin um, may be prescribed for major depression up to 300 milligrams a day. Uh, the largest pills are 150 milligrams. The ones that are approved for treating insomnia are three and six milligrams. It's ultra low. But the doxepin, apart from all of the other tricyclic antidepressants is unique because it is so highly selective for that histamine receptor. And so it's a very clean antihistamine at those very low doses. So really anything below 10 milligrams doses may fit into this category to help people stay asleep better during the nighttime. And then the most recent category, the fourth one, are the dual orexin receptor antagonists. And that's really been a revolution in the pharmacotherapy of insomnia. You know, a lot of the other drugs, particularly the benzodiazepine type medications, are have global effects in the CNS. And while they target a particular area in the hypothalamus that is related to the regulation of sleep and can help promote um, sleep onset, sleep maintenance, depending on uh, the pharmacokinetics, um, you know, there also are the, the more global effects. So there may be uh, balance difficulties. Um, there, you know, there, there, there may be other other problems, even even some uh, memory impairments sometimes with those medications. Dr. Neubauer, there are um, references to the DEA um, looking at the scheduling of uh, these vital insomnia medications with the uh, DORA class that you were mentioning to improve access to patients. Would you talk a little bit about that and in someone who has had, you know, 30 plus years of of understanding of, of how sleep disorders manifest and become worse and, and the treatments for for such kind of uh, kind of dig deeper into that for our pharmacist listeners? Sure. This, this new class, the DORAs, the dual orexin receptor antagonists, have just been around for the past few years. Suvorexant was the first, and Lemborexant, Daratorexant is the third one that's available now. Well, you know, these are very targeted um, uh, medications for the particular orexin system. Uh, we know that orexin uh, actually is wake-promoting and stabilizes wakefulness, so it kind of makes sense that bringing that down a little bit may have a sedating effect, a, a sleep-promoting effect, kind of reduces the arousal 
um, that the Rexin system normally promotes. So these medications uh, have been around the, the past few years, and um, so we, we've had more experience with them. You know, um, the DEA, FDA tend to be very conservative, and, um, you know, along with other sleep-promoting medications, the other hypnotics, you know, there, there's really some class labeling. Um, you know, the, there are exceptions, the um, melatonin-related medication, the histamine-related medication that are not scheduled, but... Um, these new doors are scheduled for controlled substances like like the benzodiazepines and um you know can recognize in the beginning why they were being cautious but we've had years of experience with these medications now and um you know there just aren't reports of, of, of people having physiologic dependence or any significant withdrawal reactions with them and part of the reason that they are scheduled is because of sort of the the odd studies that are done to uh, to make medications, uh, you know, qualify for that. So they recruit community sedative abusers, and they give them doses of medication during the daytime, and ask them how they like it. So they're given a placebo, they're given active comparators, maybe zolpidem, and they'll give them, you know, these newer ones as well. And if these community sedative abusers say, "Oh yeah, okay." Um, I kind of like what, what that did. So uh, it, it, it then has to be called a schedule four. So it's really a roundabout sort of thing. Uh, as I mentioned, there, there just isn't any uh, withdrawal that goes along with it. But here's the really odd thing and, and why many of us believe that this class of medication should be descheduled, you know, not be controlled substances. There's a huge amount of research with the dual erection receptor antagonists in the treatment of substance using patients, you know, particularly with opioid users, with cocaine users, alcohol users, various other substances as well. So there's literature supporting the therapeutic effects. So it's really ironical uh, that they uh, so far remain Schedule Four controlled substances. So, like I said, we're uh, arguing for a descheduling of these particular medications. So when you when Pharmacists are listening. I definitely think of these community and consultant pharmacists who are dealing with people who have some primary uh, chronic condition, diabetes, um, hypertension, the you know the 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 culprits that are out there uh, throughout America, for example. Sleep is a huge uh, secondary issue that they're having. So um, take our pharmacist listeners through some steps that if they're consulting with the patient and sure enough, this is coming up and it's chronic, it's happening over and over again, what kind of, what kind of measurements, what kind of steps that will lead to data gathering can a pharmacist be getting to be able to start consulting with that, that physician to, to start making some changes for that patient? Well, of course, the first step is being clear about the diagnosis of chronic insomnia because there are lots of things that can undermine somebody's sleep. You know, maybe they have sleep apnea uh, that hasn't been recognized. You know, maybe they have a, a pain condition that is not adequately treated. You know, maybe there are external factors with regard to, uh, you know, work schedule undermining their being able to sleep when they have the opportunity to sleep. So first, it's important to think very broadly about exactly what's happening. And it's important then to consider 
um, the, the potential role of all of the other medications that somebody might be taking. Uh, there might be some medications that are undermining sleep. There may be some other medications that would need to be taken into consideration if they are going to be uh, prescribed uh, a medication to promote sleep. But um, I, I think that starting in the, in the beginning, particularly for a pharmacist, is, is a, a very careful review of all the medications that somebody is taking to make sure that there's not uh, an easy answer among those. So I really appreciate the insight that you brought to us. This is the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot to actually unpack. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to our pharmacist listeners who have um, who've concentrated on insomnia for for their patients. And if you'd like, we can uh, do a follow up with uh, those pharmacists who are focusing on it and bring you back, Dr. Neubauer, to really dig into some of the more um, detailed and, and nuances of, of the insomnia. Well, thanks. It's an important and very big topic. Happy to talk with you more. We very much appreciate you, Dr. David Neubauer, and all the listeners out there, pharmacists, and what you're doing for your communities. Um, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. And if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to Pharmacy Podcast Network and um, look up uh, Dr. Uh, David Neubauer on LinkedIn. And we thank you very much. You know, we're returning to a, a safe spot for me. Because if you talk about, uh, I remember the, the name of the of the condition, hyperlipidemia. I mean, if you start talking to me about clinical stuff, unless I have a really good outline and a pharmacist at my side, um, that's where you start getting into the weeds of pharmacology and I, I get scared. Um, it's a scary place if you're not a pharmacist, and I am not. I am your um, biggest fan, leader of our podcast world and how important uh, the word and the ideals and the efforts of our pharmacist are. It is American Pharmacist Month. I want once again to wish everyone a happy American Pharmacist Month. We appreciate everything that you do. We're talking technology today. We're thinking, how do pharmacists help lead wellness and public health and safety in the crucial role that I know that they play in all sectors of long-term care and rare disease state and community but let's start talking about the leveraging of technology to help us do that. And I'm excited about two guests that I have from Assure Care. I would like to welcome uh, Prof Shaw and Dr. Tara Fund to This Week in Pharmacy. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. All right, this is your first show. I know this is not a first rodeo for Tara. You've been on a lot of podcasts, including some throughout the Pharmacy Podcast Network. We very much appreciate you. Parth, tell us about your podcasting background. I, I did one with Beth on pharmacy with Tara, I think a couple of months ago. That's that's my background. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a one, and I was supposed to be done, but I'm not. Well, this will not be your last. Once we start <laughs> weaving into other people throughout our network, we always have people back that can tell us um, more about what you're doing. Um, I'm going to start with um, Tara because it is American Pharmacist Month, so you get to go first. And that is just tell our listeners, tell the Pharmacy Podcast Network listeners and This Week in Pharmacy a little bit about your background and, and your involvement with um, AssureCare. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm out on the West Coast. I actually live in Washington State. I, I did a lot of years around advanced pharmacy practice models. Washington's and Oregon and California are pretty famous for pharmacist prescriptive authority and various payment models tied to both scope and reimbursement. So that's been a lot of my career. I did a community-based residency and spent a lot of years with Kroger Health doing national community pharmacy programs. And along the way, I saw how badly we need technology to really support pharmacists to be successful in these more innovative payment models. And so that was actually how I wound up at AssureCare. I've been really lucky to be able to work on uh, different avenues supporting pharmacists implementing clinical services and clinical programs, credentialing with medical plans, using an EHR, um, ONC certified EHR for medical billing, and then also revenue cycle management. So getting reimbursed for those claims. And that's just one of the many software solutions AssureCare has. Well, Tara, if I would have said to you, where'd you go to pharmacy school? Oregon State. All right. So imagine you and I, you'd been like this crazy guy with a baseball cap on, comes up to you, you're a P4, you know, maybe you're getting ready for the NAPLEX. And I'm like, hey, Tara, you're going to go into technology. And <laughs> you're not going to be dispensing or anything. Like, what would you, what would you have said? I would have said, no way. <laughs> I definitely was convinced I was going to do direct patient care. Uh, that was why I did the community-based residency. Uh, I, it was the first one out on the West Coast, actually. There hadn't been one. And I was like, we should have pharmacists doing ambulatory care in our community pharmacies, managing chronic disease and population health. And that was what I uh, did the residency to do. And basically during that residency, found myself more creating those roles for more pharmacists to be able to uh, help have it in more pharmacies across at the time Fred Meyer, which was in four states, which quickly grew across the country for Kroger and now the nation <laughs> with software. So it's, it's a surprising turn of events, but I love it. It is. All right. We have to hear from you, Parth. Uh, give other listeners just a little background on uh, I'm on the other coast from Tara. I, I'm from Boston. I live in Boston. I'm a pharmacist trained in India, not in America. Um, and then I did, went and did my master's in biochemistry and protein biology uh, from a university up in London. Um, by no means remember what I did in pharmacy, but got back to it when I joined AssureCare. I uh, started building products for AssureCare. I'm the vice president. Um, of a product at AssureCare overlooking the pharmacy and the beer side of the house. Um, so I think it's we've built applications at AssureCare to basically have connected care, where we are bringing all aspects of care into, uh, into the fold. And a very important piece of that was uh, pharmacy. Uh, our CEO, I still remember, always uses this example, when was told a traditional care management company is going to enter the world of pharmacy, and pharmacy management, every investor on the block said, hey, you, you guys should not be doing that. You guys need to stick to your lane uh, because pharmacy was not vertically integrated into care management at that point. Now, when we when what Tara and experts like Tara have brought to the plate at AssureCare is, hey, there is vertical integration. There is a need for not only dispensing medications, but for clinical care. Uh, for integration with care management, with nutrition management. So all of that is what we as AssureCare are trying to push into the industry that you don't really need six different systems when one system can effectively do six different things. So that's what I helped build. Thank you for that setting. You know, I get, I have a hyperactive mind. I can't help it. Um, maybe I have ADHD. Um, maybe, I'm not sure. But I keep coming back to some of the basics of what pharmacists have always done. And even though we're running into the ether of all things, artificial intelligence, predictive modeling, um, 
technology as a form of a prescription, uh, digital prescriptions, medication dispensing, medication counseling, and medication safety are literally the core of any pharmacist anywhere in any setting. I don't care if you're tech, if you're um, you know, a, um, working for pharma in clinical trials, dispensing, counseling, safety, that's kind of like the core underlying common denominator of every pharmacist in the land or across the, the globe for that matter. So let's break those down. I'm gonna start with Tara. Talk to us a little bit about the Assure Care effort and platform in in the realm of dispensing counseling and um and screening which to me is another uh, word for safety yeah and again so we've got multiple different solutions that you know kind of come together to be able to support pharmacist providers i work really on the medical billing aspect and so medication synchronization is essentially taking patients medications and filling them once a month and we've really been able to work with community pharmacy to take that kind of standard program in community pharmacy and turn that into a quality encounter so that as patients are picking up their medications, the pharmacists are not only making sure they have the right meds, but then they're also making sure that if any need to be deprescribed, if any need to be simplified, it can be once a day instead of twice a day. Um, maybe they're missing an important medication for their diabetes. So we really try to look at that patient holistically once a month and elevate um, their overall outcomes. And also because our most of our pharmacist partners are set up to medically bill, they oftentimes can bill for those encounters too. So that's a big piece of kind of taking your everyday selling of a medication, you know, where you come in one day for one medication, the next week for another, and really consolidating that more into a, a version of an appointment-based model. So that's really my favorite way of kind of looking at the new way that I see dispensing pharmacy heading. And it's a lot safer and has a lot more quality outcomes. Parth, I just got back from the NASP, the National Association of Specialty Pharmacies meeting, and we covered the event as press and, and media partner. I love that organization. There's so much passion there. Specialty pharmacy is just a surge of activity right now. Talk to us a little bit about the specialty pharmacy um, tie-in uh, with AssureCare as well. So, so we looked at pharmacy holistically. We are when when we started, we started with, hey, we want to do clinical care. We want to help patients not only with their drugs, but also everything around it. Hey, are they, should they, should they, should the pharmacist give them more details? Should, do they need more educational material? Can I use technology to drive better outcomes? Because I know more about the patient with the data I have. So when we did that, we were missing a big component of specialty pharmacy as well. Hey, can the medications reach the patient faster? On this, when it comes to specialty drugs, do I do they have to wait for six days for an, uh, for the drug to be adjudicated, dispensed, eligibility checks, and then they're receiving their medication? Do they really have to wait 30 days for that, six days, whatever that may be? So what our platform is helping is, hey, can we get this medication to the patient faster by using the operational processes or by effectively managing the operations behind the scenes when it comes to back office management? So that's where our specialty pharmacy management tool came uh, into play. And we didn't only build the tool itself. We built the clinical criteria that go along with it. How do I do an assessment? Do I have to really go out and have a small specialty pharmacy go build their own clinical content? It's not a sustainable model. So as a technology partner, we're building that clinical content in-house and saying, hey, subscribe to our library. You don't really need to spend time to do that. So that's where technology becomes more scalable. And that's how we've approached our entire pharmacy landscape on how can we make it more scalable for the people that are using 
individual systems and are, are taking six months to implement the system. Tara, I, I see the crossover and the bridges that AssureCare is building. And I think of um, iPatient care where it's the physician, the specialty care teams, administration and pharmacies that are playing into the data that is part of that. Talk to us a little bit more about, um, about AssureCare in the specialty space. In the specialty pharmacy space or yes. the specialist providers? Especially when the data is coming back to the EHR and what you're tracking and how you're tracking. Um, yeah, so we're able to receive a lot of different information on patients that are being targeted for different quality measures is a big one. Um, so we're able to identify patients that um, have some type of a need to quit tobacco use or maybe need outreach for a vaccine for children or lowering their A1C. So that's definitely a way that they kind of play into the larger healthcare ecosystem, very similar to the physician's office right down the road. So that's a really innovative way that they're able to um, have that interoperability component of, of information and then feed that uh, your tobacco status, yes, no, back to those providers. So that's been a really um, unique way that they've been able to collaborate with the other healthcare professionals and specialists in the community using the iPatient care um, solutions. When I think of back to school, um, my daughter, my two daughters just went back in late August, September. I immediately start thinking the immunization time and mm -hmm. fall and getting ready for I guess what we call flu season and the the next variation of of COVID or whenever that's going to please go away. Um, so talk to us about immunization services as well. That's a it's a huge part of the future of of pharmacy, and it's going to continue to expand as we saw um, the prevalence and importance of it during uh, the pandemic. Yeah, I mean vaccines are have been around for years. I, it's funny, I used to teach um, a certificate class on vaccines and administration. First of all, now you don't really have to teach it because everybody graduates from pharmacy school with that certificate. And uh, so that class kind of has, has um, become outdated and grandfathered for the most part. But one of the slides was about how talking to physicians, how you're not catching the patient, you're not taking their patients, you're catching the patients that would have fallen from between the cracks. And it's been really neat to watch it where now we are the destination in healthcare uh, for vaccines. And now we're really taking it even, you know, levels higher where we're able to say, you know, not only are you the center of vaccines for healthcare in America, but also you're going to make sure I'm up to date and you're going to kind of be that connecting piece, even for children between the health plans, the physician's offices, the pediatrician's offices and the pharmacy to ensure you're up to date on all the vaccines that you need. Um, so that's one of the ways we've really taken, you know, kind of yesterday's flu shots into especially, you know, the patients in their 30s, 40s, 50s, who may or may not be all caught up on their vaccines and really looking at based on your conditions, your age, where you work, are you up to date on all your vaccines and, and what else can I administer or coordinate you receiving? Um, we have really neat tools at AssureRx that we've been releasing kind of more in like a clinical coordinator support role that help pharmacists be able to quickly and efficiently do those robust um, encounters where not just you want a flu shot, here's your flu shot, but let's do vaccine season differently this year. Let's make sure that you are updated on everything. Let's make sure that the, the pharmacies have needle stick policies in place and a streamlined way to order and supplies and really be able to help those independent pharmacies grow those vaccine clinics this year. So we're excited to see that take off. Uh, Parth, I got all my shots right here. <laughs> Would you like thoughts with that? So, um. I don't think I'm going to do better than Tara, but I'll, I'll, I'll do the technology piece. Uh, from, a, uh, from a vaccine perspective, I think we've we've realized the impact post-COVID. So we every every workflow was complex. It was hard. 
uh, at a dis at point of dispensing, you're going through 16 steps to to basically clinically document what you're administering. Um, with AssureCare, what we have done is we've made it a three-step process. So our one of our largest customers, an extremely large retail slash community, Tara will correct my lingo on what that is, <laughs> uh, has has basically we, we boosted their productivity by making things simple with technology. Technology was never about complication; it was about simplicity. I think that got lost in translation when healthcare got introduced. Hey, everything is supposed to be super complex. No, it has to be simple. Um, so then we then to flu for flu vaccines, we I have algorithms that basically run on your entire on entire patient rosters to say you as a pharmacist need to take do clinical care. Don't worry about how things are getting identified. We'll bring it to you. So you can help the patient with what is actually needed instead of you trying to figure out reading through 20 pages of document and trying to figure out do they really need a flu vaccine? Do they are they missing a gap? We have direct integration with state registries where we're saying we're going to identify for a given, given member in a given state what their gaps for vaccines are. So all of that within the same technology with what uh, Tara was talking about with the SureRx, uh, scare coordination and helping these independent pharmacies puts us in a very unique position as a landscape. And we're not only doing that with pharmacy, we include the care management component along with it. It's not only one aspect of care. So I think all of that together is going to facilitate better coordination, uh, effective, better effective and enhanced coordination because all three are important for good care. So I'm starting to make my, the longer I'm in this, uh, I mean, this just makes sense, the older I'm feeling. And I remember in 2004, when I entered pharmacy, um, if the pharmacy industry in long-term care pharmacy, I couldn't find one uh, pharmacist that was assigned to uh, technology within the systems that we were uh, selling or um, even competing with. And I had competed with some very well-known uh, pharmacy management systems out there. No pharmacists were, were part of those teams. And now when you go to the trade shows and you go into a booth um, of many of these systems and providers of technology, there's pharmacists everywhere. And that, that, uh, that makes me feel proud because it makes me feel that our profession, which took some time to get it, um, really understood that if we have the people um, that have the most access to our patients involved in our technology platforms, it's gonna make more sense for outcomes and usage and data gathering and reporting and white paper development because it's being seen from a pharmacist perspective and you both bring that perspective. And I think that is so important I do want to um, mention and ask one more thing because it's a part of healthcare that has meant something to me as I spent four years in uh, medication-assisted treatment centers that concentrated on opioid use disorder, and that is um, opioid stewardship. So I very much want, um, Tara, if you could give our listeners some background in AssureCare's um, involvement in that. Yeah, so the identification of patients who might need naloxone, which is the opioid reversal drug, as, as commonly kind of said amongst the, um, the general public and is coming over the counter eventually, or is technically available, but will be more available soon, um, is something that pharmacists can prescribe or dispense per protocol in essentially all states. 
And that's an important kind of baseline foundational piece that's been going on for many, many years for pharmacy. But again, we're kind of taking that dispensing encounter where a pharmacist are maybe selling that medication and yes, giving the locks on if somebody asks about it and really marrying those two clinical events that are happening in a pharmacy and helping identify those patients in the everyday dispensing workflow to ensure that they're having those conversations with the patient and or their loved ones um, about that important medication. Is it still in date? Do you know how to use it? Do you know the signs and symptoms of overdose? And we found that the local physicians and the patients and providers are, are very grateful for that additional kind of elevated uh, service for our patients. I appreciate you both. I have to have you back sooner, Tara, than I think it's been a while. <laughs> we have to have you back. And Parth, you have to promise that you'll be uh, coming back as well. <laughs> yes, if, that would be great. <laughs> if you invite me, I'll be here. <laughs> And then the conference circuit, I know I'm headed to the NCPA. Um, this uh, week in pharmacy will be crossing over right before um, the beginning of that show. Um, and then let me think of what's next, the ASCP, the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. So what conference are you going to next, Tara? I will be at NCPA. We have a booth. Uh, so we will definitely cross paths there. That's a, a great meeting and a lot of a great innovative minds coming together. We'll be talking about the uh, kind of supporting independent pharmacies and kind of a clinical coordinator type role there um, as one of our components of the SHARX offering. So Excellent. swing by our booth. I will. We'll have to get a quote. <laughs> yes, that'd be awesome. Thank you both for being on This Week in Pharmacy and, um, and bringing the importance of pharmacists being at the center of technology and how that um, how that drives patient outcomes and how that really means um, a better uh, bowl of health care than what was there and what was available 10, 20 years ago. And I know I'm old.